Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr Katani. In this episode, we're taking a look at the birds and the bees. Not like that. From the unusual migratory habits of European blackcaps and the greatest shoal on earth to the division of labour in a beehive, we'll be exploring the role that genetics plays in shaping animal behaviours. Every year, millions of animals migrate huge distances around the world, from tiny insects to mighty whales. Ospreys leave their northern summer nests and head up to 5,000 kilometres south to Africa. Tiny monarch butterflies flitter to fir forests to sit out the winter. Humpback whales make the ponderous journey from their chilly summer feeding grounds down to warmer breeding waters. And Arctic terns travel up to 71,000 kilometres in a year, winning the title of world's longest migration. Some of these migrations are driven by the search for food, or a more pleasant climate during colder months. Others by the quest for a mate, or to reach optimal breeding grounds. But whatever the species, whether insects, birds, mammals or fish, and however far the distance, somehow these animals know when to leave and where to go. So is this behaviour hardwired into their genetic code? Let's find out. Every year, tiny songbirds, some weighing as little as three grams, set off on an incredible journey. Often travelling alone and at night, they fly as much as 15,000 kilometres between their winter and summer homes, yet somehow manage to return to the same location every year. One species that makes this annual round trip is the European blackcap, a charming little songbird that's a common feature of many gardens here in the UK. The species is what's known as a partial migrant, with some individuals migrating thousands of miles, others preferring to take shorter hops, and some not migrating at all. Birds found in the colder areas of Europe migrate in winter to northwestern Europe, the Mediterranean, and even tropical Africa. More recently, some birds have even taken to spending the winter in gardens in Britain, a new migration route that has emerged within the past century. Even populations that share the same breeding grounds don't have the same winter holiday plans, heading off in different directions when autumn comes. These dramatic differences in behaviour makes the blackcap a source of fascination for researchers who are keen to unpick the evolutionary and genetic underpinnings of migration. But how do these birds know where to go? While there is evidence that blackcaps, like many other migrating species, use the Earth's magnetic field to help them orientate, it's certainly not the only thing they rely on when it comes to getting from A to B. The first hints as to the genetic basis of migration patterns in blackcaps started to come together through breeding experiments in the 1980s and 90s. One of the most striking observations came in 1991 when researchers crossbred two blackcap populations with different migratory patterns, finding that the migratory orientation of the offspring was intermediate between the two. Simply put, if mum went west and dad went north, the offspring would go northwest. 
Nearly 30 years later, researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Biology in Germany, led by the perfectly named Miriam Liedvogel, which means songbird in German, they began to properly delve into the black cat genome to find the roots of their roots. The team used the latest DNA sequencing technology to analyse the genomes of 110 black caps across a range of populations with varying migration habits and directions, homing in on any regions of genetic difference between the birds that might explain why they go their own particular way. The team found that the tendency to migrate, and where birds migrate to, mapped to a relatively small number of regions of DNA, and that the populations with different roots and different gene variants diverged around 30,000 years ago. Rather than finding an obvious migration map gene, the regions that they identified as being important in migration were more likely to be in regions of non-coding DNA that act as control switches, turning genes on and off or up and down. Curiously, these genetic regions aren't the same as any of the genomic regions that have been linked to migration behaviour in other species, suggesting that there are many paths to generating variation in migration patterns. As usual with these kinds of studies, this is just the beginning. Finding a genetic variation associated with a trait doesn't explain what that gene or control switch does and how it affects the animal's biology and behaviour. But, as the first study of its kind, this is a strong start. Given that there does seem to be a genetic basis to the black caps' migration patterns and that crossbreeding birds that fly in different directions results in birds that tend to go somewhere in the middle – you may be wondering how different populations of blackcaps have managed to maintain their specific roots for so long, even if they're spending at least some of the year in the same place during the breeding season. Well, the answer seems to be timing. Birds that fly to the northwest arrive on the breeding grounds earlier than those that fly southwest, so they mate first, keeping the population separate. This new genetic study shows that relatively small changes in a relatively small number of genes may be enough to kickstart the formation of distinct non-interbreeding groups and potentially even one day different species just by tweaking their migration patterns and timing. When it comes to mass migrations, the most famous is probably the annual event on the African Serengeti where a herd of a million wildebeest, along with a supporting cast of zebras and gazelles, roam hundreds of miles across the plains in search of water and lush grass, trailed, as you might expect, by predators like lions and hyenas. It's so large it can be seen from space, with keen wildlife photographers often planning their safari around the best time to see the animals on the move. But there's an even bigger animal migration based around Africa that deserves just as much attention. Popularly known as the greatest shoal on Earth, the KwaZulu-Natal sardine run involves tens to hundreds of millions of Pacific sardines packed into high-density shoals to make the annual trip from the coast of South Africa to spend the winter in the Indian Ocean. For sheer size and spectacle, this marine migration is no less impressive than the wildebeests on terra firma. But unlike the Serengeti herds, which migrate in search of food, the underlying reason for the sardine run is much less clear. In search of answers, 
a team led by Peter Tesker from the University of Johannesburg, set about analysing DNA from hundreds of sardines collected around the South African coast. Curiously, the team found two genetically distinct populations of sardines, one in cooler climes on the western Atlantic coast and the other favouring the warmer waters of the eastern Indian Ocean coast, each with specific genetic adaptations that enable it to thrive in its favoured climate. However, while you might expect the warm sardines to be the ones that like to go walkabout, this isn't the case. The fish taking part in the annual migration are mainly the Atlantic cooler water variety. Every year, the sardine run is triggered by cold water welling up on the southeastern coast of South Africa, attracting the cold water loving fish and pushing them northeastwards. Not only does the warmer water have a negative impact on their fitness, combined with the exhaustion of moving along with less food availability, they also end up sandwiched between the coast and a layer of warmer water coming down from the Indian Ocean, packing them in like um, sardines and making them easy snacks for predators like dolphins, sharks, seabirds and even whales. So it doesn't seem to be for food, and it's not for the weather, so why would millions upon millions of these little fishies make such a dangerous journey, for no apparent reason? The researchers suspect that the great sardine migration is an ingrained spawning behaviour left over from the last glacial period tens of thousands of years ago, when the now subtropical Indian Ocean would have been much cooler. So it would make sense for cold water sardines to head over there to spawn when things got too nippy in the winter. Despite what was then a very good idea, now being a very bad one, for some reason the sardines are still compelled to migrate. Finally, having been tricked once by changing temperatures into an unnecessary and damaging migration, it's looking like the Great Sardine Run may be finally stymied altogether by modern-day climate change. As the planet warms, the cold-water sardines may not be able to adapt and survive. Although the number of fish taking part in the migration is impressive, it's actually less than 10% of all the sardines in the South African region. So while there are likely to be plenty of warm water adapted sardines, they don't have the same urge to get up and go as their cold water cousins. So this incredible spectacle may not be around for much longer. Appropriately for sardines, if you want to see them on the move, you'll have to catch it while you can. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? Back in episode 17 of this series, how to be a queen bee, Sally LePage took us on a journey to the heart of the hive, exploring how bee societies work and what it takes to become a queen. There's much more to explore about these fascinating societies and the genetics that underpin them, so I thought I'd take a closer look to see what the buzz is about. Bees have long fascinated geneticists. These eusocial insects live in highly ordered societies, with distinct roles or castes within them. A place for every bee, and every bee in its place. 
But how does a hive of genetically near-identical individuals end up diversifying into such different roles? This is most obvious for female bees, which can become either one of many short-lived sterile workers or one reigning reproductive queen, along with male drones. And even within this female workforce, there are different jobs to be done, from foraging for food to protecting the hive or raising young. As Sally explained in her episode, we now know that the journey to becoming a queen bee starts early on in life and depends on what baby bees are fed. Princesses, those larvae destined to become queens, are fed on royal jelly, while larvae that will become worker bees get bee bread. But rather than royal jelly being the trigger to become a queen, it's the absence of bee bread that sets her on a regal path, as plant chemicals present in the bee bread suppress the development of reproductive organs, a groundbreaking discovery made in 2015 from May Berenbaum and her team. But how does this actually work? Now, if you've been paying attention to these podcasts over the past few years, you might recognise what's going on here where individuals, whether that's animals or cells, that have the same genome end up specialising into distinct roles through the influence of factors in their environment. Yes, folks, it's epigenetics. Long before Berenbaum's discovery about bee bread and royal jelly, researchers had been digging into the bee genome in search of clues to their different fates. One of the most obvious telltale signs they were looking for was DNA methylation. Small chemical tags that are put on or removed from certain letters of DNA and are associated with patterns of gene activity, switching genes on or off. There's a long and complicated history of research into DNA methylation and how it might be influenced by diet, not just in bees but in other animals and humans and whether these marks are controlling gene activity or just reflecting patterns that are established by other means, which we don't have time to go into here, but there's more in my book Herding Hemingway's Cats and episode 15 from series 3 of the podcast, Pimp My Genome, The Wonderful World of Epigenetics, if you're really interested. One of the most famous examples of this phenomenon in mammals is the case of agouti mice, which come in a range of colours and sizes, from brown and slim to yellow and fat, despite being genetically identical. Changing the amount of the nutrient folate, which alters DNA methylation patterns in a pregnant agouti mouse's diet, changes the appearance of her pups, neatly demonstrating how a change in diet might send individuals down different paths, despite having the same genes. So it would make sense that feeding baby bees a different diet might be altering their DNA methylation, with implications for their gene activity patterns and subsequent development and behaviour. Back in the noughties, when epigenetics started to become really cool, researchers didn't have good tools to look at patterns of DNA methylation across the whole genome, let alone good enough data to compare between queen bees and workers. Instead, researchers led by Richard Maleska at the Australian National University in Canberra came at the problem from the other direction. In 2008, they published a study using a clever technique called RNA interference, or RNAi, using injections of RNA to shut down the activity of an enzyme called DNA methyltransferase 3, or DNMT3, which is responsible for adding methylation marks to DNA during development. 
Switching off DNMT3 in female larvae resulted in nearly three-quarters of them turning out as queens, far more than would be expected, showing that DNA methylation is definitely playing some kind of role in the switch from worker to queen, mediated by diet. As they say in their paper, our results suggest that DNA methylation in apis, that's bees, is used for storing epigenetic information, that the use of that information could be differentially altered by nutritional input, and that the flexibility of epigenetic modifications underpins profound shifts in developmental fates, with massive implications for reproductive and behavioural status. Over the past decade or more, researchers have been trying to get to the bottom of what makes a queen a queen, epigenetically speaking. By 2010, Maleshka and his team were able to look at DNA methylation across the whole honeybee genome, finding highly distinctive patterns in queens and workers at more than 550 genes, although this has been contradicted by other research showing no difference in methylation between workers and queens. Today, the latest deep sequencing techniques are able to look at methylation patterns in exquisite detail in ever smaller groups of cells, shedding new light on the connections between epigenetic marks, gene activity and honeybee behaviour. In 2018, Paul Hurd at Queen Mary University of London, actually an old buddy from my PhD days, teamed up with Maleshka to go even deeper into the bee genome. They use the latest techniques to map patterns of modifications on histones. These are ball-shaped proteins that DNA wraps around inside the cell and affect how it's packed and unpacked in order to be read or silenced. And they're another key part of epigenetic gene regulation. As might be expected, they found key differences at specific genes between workers and queens, helping to pinpoint specific genetic switches within DNA that control the fate of a developing female bee. Curiously, these differences in behaviour between workers and queens may be due to differences in their brains. In 2021, Hurd and his collaborators made an intriguing accidental discovery. They'd originally set out to find an antibody that could bind to the B version of 10-11-translocation methylcytosine dioxygenase, or TET for short. In mammals, there's a family of TETs, which were involved in many things in cells, including DNA demethylation and controlling networks of gene activity. Seeing as bees only have one version of the gene, it should have been fairly easy to find an antibody that bound to it. Unfortunately, the antibody the team made didn't bind to TET. Curses! Instead, it locked on to an entirely unknown protein, which was produced in bee brains. So far, so interesting. But what made this really cool was what they saw when they used fluorescence microscopy to look at where this new protein was located in the brains of bees, comparing male drones, female workers, queens and larvae at various stages. The antibody lit up a strange rod-like structure inside the nuclei of specific brain cells known as Kenyan cells, but only in drones and workers with the strongest pattern seen in foraging workers, and queens having a much more sporadic, weaker pattern. But worker larvae didn't seem to have any of the protein at all, suggesting that these unusual structures form as their brains develop into adulthood. So perhaps they have something to do with the way in which honeybees' brains can grow and change as they mature and learn. 
Aside from the major differences between queens and workers, epigenetic changes have also been implicated in defining roles within the honeybee working class. Nurse bees get busy in the hive, making honeycombs and raising the babies, while foragers protect the hive and go out in search of food. Generally, bees are nurses when they're younger, and then become foragers as they mature. Again, as you might expect, there are differences in DNA methylation between these two groups. But these aren't fixed. A study in 2012 showed that DNA methylation patterns in foraging bees that are forced to switch roles and go back to stay in the hive as nursemaids also changed to look like those of nurses. Apparently this is the first evidence in any organism of reversible epigenetic changes associated with behaviour. So while the genes encoding all kinds of bee behaviour and appearance are encoded within the bee genome, it's the epigenetic state that determines which are active, and therefore what kind of bee a bee can be. As Gro Amdam, one of the researchers, puts it, it's like one of those pictures that portray two different images depending on your angle of view. The bee genome contains images of both nurses and foragers. The tags on the DNA give the brain its coordinates so that it knows what kind of behaviour to project. There's a final intriguing sting in this tale. In 2019, researchers at the University of Cambridge and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, led by E.L. Maori, uncovered evidence for an even weirder and cooler epigenetic phenomenon at work in honeybees. The story starts in 2009, when the scientists were testing a potential way of protecting honeybees from infection with Israeli Acute Paralysis Virus, or IAPV, which can cause bee colonies to collapse. The treatment was a form of RNA interference, similar to the experiments I described earlier, and involved getting bees to eat RNA designed from the virus, which would silence the virus by interfering with its gene activity, protecting the bees from infection. Not only did it work, hooray, the hives with bees that were treated with the RNA produced more honey. And strangely, this effect carried on at least three to four months after the treatment stopped, when the bees should have died and been replaced. In their 2019 study, the researchers showed that the protective RNA was being transmitted down the generations through royal jelly, passing from one queen to the next. Not only that, but royal jelly also contained a bunch of naturally occurring RNAs, which look like they should be able to switch off genes in honeybees, potentially contributing to making a queen, as well as infectious agents like viruses, bacteria and fungi, maybe acting as some kind of inherited immune defence for the community. There are still plenty of questions about how this works. Not least about how a molecule as fragile as RNA can survive in royal jelly and the unfriendly environment of a bee's belly. But if this research is to be believed, it's a fascinating further layer of complexity in the honeybee story. All very fascinating and keeping entomologists busy, I'm sure. But it's important we don't forget the bigger picture. Not only are bees fascinating for their complex society and intriguing epigenetics, they're an absolutely essential part of the ecosystem, pollinating the plants that feed us. It's not quite no bees, no food, but the impact on global farming and the planet would be devastating, 
So we need to make sure we keep an eye on the bees and their behaviour, because if they all buzz off, we're going to be in trouble. That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a look at what we can learn from sampling DNA in the environment, from tracking down elusive animals to identifying missing bodies. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip. And please, please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it does help more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented by me, Katani, with additional research by Eleanor Bird. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and our logo was designed by James Mayle. Audio productions by Sally LePage and Emma Werner. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.